I'm David Tucker, Senior Fellow at Teaching American History. I'm talking today with Steve Knott, who is the Thomas and Mabel Guy Professor of American History and Government uh, in, at Ashland University and Professor of National Security Affairs at the United States Naval War College. We're talking about Steve's new book, Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy, which will be published in October 2022. Thanks uh, for joining me this uh, today, Steve, and I thought I would start by asking how how you came to write the book and, and why you wanted to do it. Well, thanks for having me, David. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, so I've been thinking about this book for some time. Actually, I would even say for decades. Uh, I grew up in a Kennedy-worshipping family in Massachusetts, uh, of course, I'm part of the baby boom generation, and I'm just old enough to remember, in fact, my first memories of a hum- as a human being is of the Cuban Missile Crisis and seeing this man speaking on a grainy black and white television. I didn't know what was going on. I'm not even sure I knew who that man was. But over, uh, slowly, as, as his address went on, I could see the fear in my parents' faces. And they were actually uh, kind of shushing my brother and I who were wrestling on the floor to be quiet so that they could listen to what turned out to be President Kennedy warning about the impending Cuban Missile Crisis. That's my earliest memory as a human being. And then my second earliest memory is about a little more than a year later when I came home from school and my mother was sitting in front of that same grainy black and white television watching the news from Dallas that President Kennedy had been assassinated. And that was the first time I'd ever seen my mother cry. I was six years old at the time. Mm. So uh, that's, that's sort of the beginning of it all. And I should add to it, my mother was Irish Catholic. And uh, for her, the fact that President Kennedy kind of broke that glass ceiling and allowed uh, a Catholic or was able to win uh, the presidential race in 1960 and become the first Catholic president. That was something for her that she uh, never forgot. And it was a major milestone in her life. Uh, she had, uh, we were living in a small New England town in Massachusetts. And my mother, along with a few others, had actually had to fight to create the first Catholic church in town probably 15 or so years before Kennedy became president. So his elevation to the presidency was a major milestone in her life. And again, I grew up in that atmosphere where the Kennedys were, uh, to be blunt, somewhat worshipped, almost a cultish devotion. Yeah, in your, your introduction, you mentioned that as an impediment to people understanding Kennedy, uh, the the high degree uh, of... Um, appreciation for him and you you as you say a worship almost of him as is an impediment to understanding him yeah no question about it and my first job out of college was at the john f kennedy library in boston i was there when it opened to the public and i would witness up close and personal just busloads of tourists some of them on the older side who, uh, you know, were either in tears after going through the museum at the Kennedy Library or would come up to me and other employees and just tell stories about how much JFK's ascension to the presidency meant, meant, to, meant to them. And uh, frequently the discussion would then turn to the assassination in Dallas. So, again, I think for younger generations, it might be difficult to sort of get your hands around the fact that for Certain Amer- Americans of a certain age, perhaps of a certain religion, Catholic, uh, certainly Irish Americans, a certain ethnicity. Uh, John F. Kennedy again was something close to a secular saint. So you you've now come to reevaluate him. Do you can you describe how what that what that change consisted in? I mean, in, in you you had a, a view of him. Uh, I, I gather you. Uh, you may have shared that uh, worshipful view of him, and then that changed, and now you've you've got a a, a third opinion of, about him. 
Uh, that's correct. <laughs> correct. So uh, in a way, this book operates on two levels. It, 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 it examines President Kennedy's policies, both domestic and foreign, uh, but it also does kind of track my own evolution, as you just laid out. And uh, as a young man in my 20s, I was a worshiper of President Kennedy. Uh, but interestingly enough, my experience at the Kennedy Library, at least in part, contributed to my sort of drifting away from the faith, if you will. Um, I began to see some things. You know, the library was notorious in those days for playing favorites uh, with sort of family historians, uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., uh, perhaps even Doris Kearns Goodwin, others that the family thought would give them a favorable take on President Kennedy and on the Kennedy family. But for really objective historians, people like Herbert Parmet, uh, Robert Dalek, and some others, they had a tendency to stonewall these people, uh, to make it difficult, if not impossible, for these historians to get access to the kinds of materials that Goodwin and Schlesinger had access to. That really turned me off. I mean, as much as I was a devotee of President Kennedy, uh, I was also a devotee, I was also somewhat devoted to the study of history uh, and government, and I was just, as I said, put off by that kind of uh, practice, this attempt to manipulate history, uh, to manipulate the record. And I actually began to move pretty far rightward in my own, in my political views, partly as a result of that experience, and began to see President Kennedy in a particularly critical light. The third phase that you mentioned, I've decided it would maybe time to go back, try to look at, you know, the, the reasons for the worshiper cult emerging, uh, look at and weigh the criticisms of some of those who reacted to this Camelot mythology that was created. And I hope and I think I found a kind of middle ground, an appropriate reasoned ground between those two extreme views of President Kennedy. Yeah, and I should have mentioned that your uh, academic uh, specialty, uh, if you want to put it that way, is the American presidency. So uh, I assume that your your work on other presidents has affected the way you, you think about Kennedy now. Absolutely true, uh, David. In fact, you know, one of the spurs for this book was my last book, uh, which I'm proud of and I still stand by. Uh, but in that last take, you could probably still see perhaps some vestiges of my recoiling at most of the Kennedy record. And that, too, was another factor in terms of trying of going back and revisiting the Kennedy presidency. But let me add to this, um, back to the sort of personal angle in this new book. Uh, my mother, the, the person who, God bless her, worshipped uh, President Kennedy and the entire Kennedy family, uh, used to say to me when I'd give her my latest book on Ronald Reagan or a book defending George W. Bush's actions in the war on terror, when are you going to write a book about a good president like Joe <laughs> Kennedy? And so I finally delivered from my mother. Unfortunately, she's no longer around to see this. But uh, uh, anyways, I thought you might enjoy hearing that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, in, in, you in the introduction, and then you follow through in the book, but in the introduction, you focus on five areas as the basis of this reassessment of Kennedy. And I, I wondered if, you, uh, if you'd be willing to go through those five and, and just talk about them a bit. And why you chose those five? I mean, I assume it's because that you thought they revealed uh, the most about Kennedy's presidency. Yeah, I think they do, David. So the first one I'll start off with, and it is chapter one in the book, is is President Kennedy's understanding of presidential power. And I think we can safely say that John F. Kennedy's understanding of presidential power is rooted very much in the Wilsonian take on the presidency, that the American president should be as big a man as he can be. And John F. Kennedy was fond of quoting that line from Woodrow Wilson. So Kennedy was very much immersed in the sort of T.R. Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt progressive take on the American presidency, that it was the responsibility of the president 
to sort of break through the chains, if you will, of separation of powers and checks and balances and to provide the kind of leadership that would, quote, get things done, end quote. And Kennedy promised repeatedly in 1960 that he was going to get this country moving again. But he always followed that up by saying that requires strong presidential leadership of the type put forward by Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. And Kennedy actually makes, this is interesting, I think, the, the issue of presidential power is sort of in the mix in 1960 because Kennedy believes that Eisenhower represents a tradition. Outgoing President Eisenhower represents a tradition of a, restra- a more restrained, perhaps 19th century chief executive understanding of the role of the chief executive. And Kennedy promises to do away with that. His presidency is going to be the center of action. Uh, his presidency is going to break through the, uh, the, the stagnation, the, the, um, uh, you know, the, the separation of powers that sort of prevents the American government from moving with speed and a certain level of efficiency. Uh, he's going to break the deadlock. He was fond of citing James McGregor Burns's deadlock of democracy as evidence of the fact that something had to give, and it was the president's job to, to take the lead and to put the president at the vital center of action. And I conclude that chapter by saying that I believe this is Kennedy's perhaps most egregious failure, in a sense, in that he contributed to a perception of the presidency that's unhealthy for Republican government. I think he inflated the expectations of the American people as to what the presidency could accomplish. Uh, now, he's not, look, he's not alone in that, uh, but he was definitely part and parcel of that. And his use of television allowed him, in a sense, to become the center of action to a point. Of course, his legislative agenda was frequently bogged down. Uh, but I do see Kennedy again contributing to this inflated expectations about what the presidency and the federal government as a whole can deliver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that, uh, I, I was going to say, uh, when you started describing his presidency, I said, well, what, to myself, what I know is Steve Knott is that's not Steve Knott's view of the presidency. Uh, <laughs> that's not. <laughs> that when you were referring to your previous book, I, it was clear that was not your view of the presidency. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. And it does seem to me that Kennedy and a lot of progressive mid-20th century historians and political scientists, their contemptuous view of Dwight Eisenhower uh, was misplaced. Uh, clearly, as Fred Greenstein has laid out, Eisenhower was the hidden hand president. And I see that model as having a tremendous amount of merit. Kennedy was determined to just explode that. And I think the consequences were, for the most part, negative. Right. Okay. Uh, do you make a distinction when you, when you're talking about that between what Kennedy did in foreign policy and what he did in domestic policy? Um, uh, excellent question. Uh, look, I, you know, and I have written in the past, I've sort of defended presidential prerogatives in the foreign policy arena. And I think I continue to do so in this book. Uh, my, so, so, so I do make that distinction. And my criticism is primarily directed at this idea, uh, that there should be, that, that the president, in a sense, is the de facto speaker of the House, uh, that the president should set the legislative agenda, uh, that the president uh, should feel free to criticize the courts uh, for, for, you know, checking executive power, all of those kinds of things. So my criticism, I would say, David, is primarily focused on the impact that it's had internally in terms of domestic governance. So, so that's the, the first issue where, um, your assessment seems not to have changed that much. Uh, what were the, and then the second one I believe you mentioned was Kennedy's approach to civil rights. That's a domestic issue, obviously. Yeah. So, yeah. So <clears throat> one of the things I've had to wrestle with, and your question goes right to it is, uh, and, and I did make this point in my previous book that I do think there are certain times, certain occasions in American history where um, 
sort of fundamental regime questions are at stake, uh, where a president needs to, to speak out. And I think belatedly, John F. Kennedy did do that uh, regarding the issue of civil rights in June of 1963. Um, you've heard me say to you in the past that I think Kennedy's civil rights address to the American public on June 11, 1963, is truly a classic uh, in, in terms of American, um, uh, American speeches, the statement of various American presidents. It should be required reading for students at the high school and college level, it seems to me. So th th there are occasions where this kind of presidential rhetoric, this kind of uh, public outreach, I think is absolutely essential. And Kennedy came to that conclusion in June of 1963 after a series of violent incidents, um, starting at the University of Mississippi, well, starting in 1961 with the Freedom Riders and the, the attacks on them in the Deep South. Uh, in 1962, the violence at the University of Mississippi in Oxford in September of 62. And then in the spring of 63, uh, 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 Bull Connor and his fire hoses and his police dogs being set upon peaceful civil rights demonstrators in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Kennedy had finally reached the end. Uh, he had already been criticized for not speaking out more forcefully. And again, by June of 1963, he throws the entire weight of his presidency behind the civil rights movement. And let me just point out, David, that is going to cost him politically. Uh, his poll numbers begin to drop in June of 63, uh, particularly in the South, although not exclusively, because he is now firmly identified with the civil rights movement of Martin Luther King and others. And again, I find that an appropriate use of the presidential bully pulpit. You, you've mentioned with regard to that speech, uh, I believe in a, in, in a, conversation we had once about it, you mentioned that the important thing was that Kennedy claimed it was a moral issue. Uh, and I know in your book, you, you, you characterize Eisenhower and uh, Truman as um, doing things for civil rights, but always doing it under the, under, you might say, the, the uh, constitutional power of the presidency, the legal issues decided by the court, enforcing the court, as a presidential responsibility. So is that, is that the, is my memory correct that you see the Kennedy saying this is a moral issue, not, not just a political or legal issue as the key element of that, which distinguished that speech? I, I think so, David. Now, the only thing I would qualify in terms of what you said, um, <clears throat> I do mention Harry Truman as somebody who at the time, I believe, where he desegregates the military. He does refer to it in and around that time. He does refer to civil rights, equal treatment under the law for African-Americans as, as a moral question. I mentioned that in the book. I probably should have made more about it than I actually did. Uh, but Eisenhower, I think the criticism is, is accurate. Uh, Eisenhower had people in his administration, like Attorney General Herbert Brownell, who I think were very... Um, uh, dedicated public servants and, and Brownell took a, you know, fairly assertive stance on civil rights matters. But Eisenhower frequently balked, uh, at some of the proposals that Brownell came forward with. And whenever Eisenhower was asked at various press conferences about his own views regarding Brown versus Board and regarding the desegregation of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas in 57, you know, it was always, they were always very legalistic responses. And I thought that, I still think to this day, that that was a wasted opportunity. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower is still the hero of Operation Overlord, a revered figure both then and now. And he never fully threw the weight of his presidency behind the cause of civil rights. I see Kennedy doing that, and I think it was an appropriate step, and I think that sets him apart from Dwight Eisenhower. And again, that would be, um, I, I think, to, to go back to that distinction you made, 
Norm, uh, typically, I think you would see Eisenhower's restraint as a president as a good thing, but not on a question like that. That's correct, David. And I realize it's a judgment call. Uh, I'm also critical of Eisenhower in my previous book for his silence regarding Joseph McCarthy and McCarthyism. Yes, Eisenhower worked fairly vigorously behind the scenes to get rid of that skunk, as he liked to call it. Um, but again, there might have been a kid. I, I won't even say might. I think that was an opportunity for this hero, for this revered American statesman, uh, to put his own imprint on the idea that, you know, dissenting views perhaps should always be welcomed. And the idea that, you know, people needed to be removed from their jobs because they weren't 100% anti-communist or whatever the rationale. You know, I just wish Ike had stepped up to the plate on that. So on civil rights and on dealing with McCarthy, I would still be quite uh, critical of, of Eisenhower, who in many ways I find an ad admirable figure. To go back to Kennedy, uh, there was this famous episode in the campaign in 1960 where he called Coretta Scott King, and uh, my impression is that that was done more by his staff than by Kennedy. I mean, I know Kennedy made the call, but it, right. it seemed right. to come as a as a kind of campaign maneuver. You and and he was criticized, I think, afterwards, criticized afterwards for precisely for that, and then his. He didn't seem to follow up in the first years of his administration. But do you uh, think that's, that's a, a, a just criticism of him? Uh, I do. Uh, as you say, he did make the call. But, yes, the idea for that call uh, came from a campaign associate, uh, Harris Wofford, who will later join the administration as a kind of outreach person to the African-American community. Uh, Wofford, Sergeant Shriver, Kennedy's brother-in-law, were also behind it. Robert Kennedy was furious when they found out that these two had um, yeah. uh, uh, urged Kennedy to make this call to, to Coretta Scott King, her husband who was being held in Albany, Georgia, under questionable circumstances. They kept moving him around. There was real fear that he would be killed. Uh, so JFK makes the call. Um perhaps reluctantly, but he does make the call. I will just point out, Richard Nixon was asked to do the same thing and did not. Um, uh, and there is a case to be made that that call uh, might have put Kennedy into the White House. I know that's sort of conventional wisdom, but there's something to, I think, the conventional wisdom. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King's father, for instance, immediately shifted his support uh, from Nixon and the Republicans to JFK, one of Martin Luther King's father's objections to JFK was that he was Catholic. Right. And he's quoted as saying something to the effect of, I vote for the devil or a Catholic if he's going to stop the tears flowing from my daughter-in-law's eyes. Um, so, <laughs> by the way, when JFK was told about that, about uh, Martin Luther King's father objecting to him on religious grounds, uh, Kennedy's response was, well, we all have fathers, don't we? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, um, I, I think it's it's important to remember that um, maybe you would disagree with this, but from what I've read, I, my impression is that Kennedy was actually the conservative Democratic nominee in 1960. And there there was in the it was the Republican Party that because it, it, it its voting uh, strength was not in the South was more forward uh, with regard to civil rights than, say, Kennedy was actually in his record up to 1960. So that's a, a context which I think people may not have in mind now because things have, have become so different. But that, that was the situation then. No, I, I think that's true, David. I mean, Kennedy's voting record as a member of the House for six years and then a member of the Senate for eight years was, you know, fairly progressive on civil rights matters. But as he began to gear up for the presidential race in 1960, he went, he went out of his way to court powerful Southern, particularly governors, John Patterson uh, in uh, Alabama, uh, Ross Barnett in Mississippi, and some other folks. And Kennedy knew or believed that the path to the White House for a Democrat in the mid-20th century was through the South, that you had to carry those southern states. 
And so he did prim, in a sense, I think, on, on civil rights. Part of the reason Robert Kennedy was so furious with the phone call to Coretta Scott King was Robert Kennedy was JFK's campaign manager, and he said to Wofford and Shriver and others, you guys just cost us the election. And you're going to see Kennedy as president sort of walking this tightrope for the brief period that he's in the White House of trying to keep that white Southern Democratic base happy. Um, and at the same time, slowly, and, and this is perhaps where Kennedy overestimated his own abilities to, jump, to charm and cajole. I mean, he was constantly working the phones with Governor Wallace, with Governor Patterson, with Governor Barnett, trying to persuade them to allow for one or two black students to be admitted to their universities. And those efforts failed. Um, but to your larger point, yes, in 1960, the Republican Party was still seen as the party of Lincoln, prominent African-Americans, not just Martin Luther King Sr., uh, but Jackie Robinson, the, the famous baseball player, was a strong Nixon supporter, which which bugged JFK to <laughs> no end. Um, and it's due to this perception, which was accurate, uh, that the Democratic coalition had a strong segregationist base uh, at its foundation. Yeah, and it's true, isn't it, that Kennedy uh, appointed uh, at least a couple of segregationist Yes. Judges. And I don't I don't mention that to to condemn him because you could claim that that was part of this effort he was engaged in of, of trying to move southern opinion. Um, but it, it that's the kind of thing that led to criticism of it yes. um, from civil rights uh, advocates. Uh, no question, David. I think one of the judges I may be screwing this name up, but it was a Harold Harold Cox, I believe was his name. Uh, died in the wool segregationist, I think Alabama, maybe Mississippi. Uh, yeah, there were a number of judicial appointments that were at the lower district court level, uh, fairly, you know, offensive, at least uh, certainly to me. Um, and, um, yeah, he, he, not only these judicial appointments that you mentioned, David, but Kennedy had promised in the 1960 campaign that he was going to end discrimination in federally financed housing with the stroke of a pen. He was going to do this with an executive order. This was an explicit promise made in October of 1960. Uh, 1960. And he doesn't get around to doing it until around, I think, September of 62, if I'm not mistaken. And in the interim, you know, people like Dr. King and others are saying, what's, you know, <laughs> what's going on? And he actually saw a concerted campaign to mail pens to the White House uh, in case the president needed <laughs> access to a pen to sign this executive order. So, yeah, look, there's there's no question that there's an evolution in Kennedy's stance on civil rights, and he is a disappointment almost for the first two years of his presidency. Disappointment to groups like Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the NAACP. Right, right. Well, let's, uh, the, the civil rights in those years is, a is a, I think very important thing to discuss and to understand. But I, there are some other, uh, four other points that you, you, uh, raise in your book and your reassessment of Kennedy. And I wanted to go on and talk about a couple of those. Um, in foreign policy, you talk about Cuba, the Soviet Union and Vietnam. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how your, your view of Kennedy changed on those issues. The most dramatic change, David, occurred in terms of my uh, views of Kennedy in Vietnam. I was definitely part of the school uh, that came to believe that Kennedy would have followed the exact same course that Lyndon Johnson will follow in the mid to late 60s. Uh, I firmly believe that. I mean, let's face it, it's Kennedy's team. It's Robert McNamara. It's Dean Rusk. It's McGeorge Bundy uh, and others who are advising Johnson to escalate, to increase American involvement in Vietnam throughout the, the 60s. Uh, I, I've since done a 180-degree turn on that. And I look, I grant you, this is all speculation, okay? So with that qualifier up front, I, I do think I make, I hope, a compelling case that Kennedy would not have followed the same course 
as Johnson. And I base that on a few things. One is that Kennedy felt far more uh, confident in terms of dealing with foreign policy questions than Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson was a creature of American domestic politics. His dream was the great society. He's a new dealer through and through. In fact, there's a famous quote about Johnson that, and I'll butcher it a little bit, but the gist of it was that his real love was the great society, and it was that damn bitch Vietnam that was sort of distracting him constantly. Uh, But for Kennedy, it was actually the opposite. Kennedy was much more interested in foreign relations. He had traveled widely as a member of the Senate forum, prior to becoming a public figure, traveled widely. His father, of course, had been ambassador to London uh, in the pre-war years, controversial tenure for sure. Uh, But Kennedy used that opportunity to travel throughout Europe. Uh, It was constantly on the move. And as a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, excuse me, I think it was the House Foreign Affairs Committee, he had traveled to Vietnam in the French Indochina in the early 50s and spent weeks there and made, and this is typical John F. Kennedy, by the way, he made a point of talking to sort of lower and mid-level embassy officials. This was never a guy who was satisfied with what he was going to get from the ambassador himself or for the number two person. Kennedy was, he was always probing on issues, and he does this with Vietnam, I think, throughout his life, uh, throughout his public service. Now, look, when he becomes president, he had taken a hardline position on communism. Uh, he'd accused Eisenhower Nixon of being asleep at the wheel. He promises in his inaugural address to bear any burden and oppose any foe. Uh, and so politically, he outflanks Nixon on the national security front, which was an unbelievable accomplishment for a Democrat in the mid to late 20th century. There's usually the Republicans that are hammering the Democrats for being weak and lily-livered. Uh, Kennedy doesn't do that with Nixon. He presents, presents Nixon as the guy who's weak. So in a sense, his campaign promises in 1960 are going to box him in, in both, I would say, Cuba and Vietnam, and Berlin to an extent. Uh, and he is trying, I think, for most of his presidency to not give the appearance that he's um, uh, frustrated or has a kind of defeatist view about the prospects in South Vietnam. That's, that's publicly uh, but privately, he's much more skeptical. Um, he's uh, very uh, put off by the optimistic assessments he's getting out of the Defense Department. And for that reason and others, I just don't see him following the same path as Lyndon Johnson. Let me quickly add one thing, David. This is a commander-in-chief who's incredibly casualty-averse. Uh, but he's going to conceal that under this sort of soaring anti-communist rhetoric. But we now have access to the private letters that Kennedy wrote while serving in the Second World War and his disdain for war itself. And he kept he, he, he keeps that under wraps because for a Democrat, that kind of talk is political suicide. So I think, you know, the, the president who refused to follow up in the Bay of Pigs by committing American forces, the president who refused to try to stop Khrushchev from building the Berlin Wall, the president who made unbelievable concessions that might have cost him his presidency, were they known at the time, during the missile crisis, Um, and the president who in June of 63 extends an olive branch to the Soviet Union. I just don't see him going down the same path where you have 550,000 Americans in South Vietnam by 1968 and hundreds and thousands of casualties. So what do you think would have been the difference? I mean, in other words, it seems to me that Kennedy would not have done anything major prior to the election in 64. Yes. After that, what do you think? Do you think he would he would have said, I'm going to withdraw? I mean, we've we've reached the point where... We've done everything we can, and I'm going to pull out. I, I mean, think, would, would he not have felt 
what Johnson, I think, felt was that that would have posed a threat to his domestic, uh, to, to the presidency and it's, it's the presidency itself, not just domestic policy, but it would have undermined uh, any other efforts in, in foreign policy. I mean, as you say, I mean, it's clear from the record, I think, that he was very interested in trying to do something about nuclear weapons, for example. Yeah. But wouldn't there have been a fear that, that pulling out of Vietnam would have undermined him domestically and in, for, in his efforts in foreign policy? Yeah, and, and that fear was there for sure, and he felt it and responded to it. Well, let me repeat what I said earlier. I'm engaging in speculation here. Yeah. Uh, but I think he would have tried to have followed a path somewhat similar to what he pulled off in Laos, what he and the, and the cruise ship of the Kremlin in 1962 uh, reached an agreement for the neutralization of Laos. Now, it really didn't take. Both sides continued, in a sense, semi-covertly to fund their uh, uh, the, the, the entities that, that were either Western or pro-Soviet. Uh, I think he would have tried to have done something like that, Vietnam, seeking a kind of cover by striking a deal with Khrushchev. I do think one of the great lost or missed opportunities from Kennedy's death in 63 and Khrushchev being deposed in late 64 is precisely this type of an event. I think the two of them were moving towards a period of detente that would have happened had Kennedy not been killed and Khrushchev not deposed a year later. Again, David, I grant you this is all speculation, but I think I'm firmly convinced that whatever option he would have chosen, JFK would have selected, uh, would not have involved more than a half a million American combat troops in Vietnam. And I think you're absolutely right. He probably would have been pilloried for for that for those steps, and the Republicans probably would have won the election of 1968, partly on those grounds. You mentioned uh, the the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I wanted to talk about that uh, a bit anyway, because that that's typically seen as the great moment in, in the Kennedy administration. And I think uh, again, this is based on my. Uh, far from complete reading uh, uh, about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but my sense is, anyway is that more recent accounts have said it, it wasn't so masterfully handled oh, as it no. appeared to be at the time. <laughs> Although I have to say, you mentioned Kennedy's speech about Cuba, and I, re I watched that. It's available on YouTube, and I thought it was a remarkable performance, and I don't mean that in a bad way. He had to perform to reassure people but the, the, his tone, his manner, uh, the language, the firmness of it, yet, you know, kind of being cautious where he should have been. I, I thought it was a remarkable, uh, it, it's really something to watch, to listen to and, and so forth. But, uh, have, has your view, I mean, are you, do you see the Cuban Missile Crisis as a, a masterful moment in presidential leadership or, or were we lucky to get through it alive? Well, I actually do see it as a masterful moment, David, but not for the reasons I would have tried to make uh, or to say to you 30 or 40 years ago. <laughs> In other words, what I'm getting at is the entire 13 days account, Robert Kennedy's book, 13 Days, and various television and movies that have followed the Robert Kennedy line is complete fiction. Right. So the idea that President Kennedy you know, stared down the Soviet Union. We went eyeball to eyeball, and the other fellow just blinked. Um, you know, that kind of this young president who stood up to the bullies in the Kremlin, uh, that, that account is complete fiction, okay? President Kennedy was, in, and the reason I can speak with certainty on this is we have the tape recordings of all the conversations that occurred within the executive committee of the National Security Council that JFK convened. Uh, and so I, well, I, I can't say all, but I would say well over 90% of the discussions are on, rec on the record. And Kennedy is, John F. Kennedy is the lone voice in those executive committee meetings, constantly reminding the other men, they were all men, in the room, uh, that you need to put yourselves in your adversary's shoes. He was constantly probing his Sovietologists 
to explain to him Khrushchev's motives. Um, and he was constantly resisting the suggestions of Curtis LeMay, the chief of staff of the Air Force, and of people like Robert Kennedy, who completely will write an account completely different from the facts. Uh, uh, they're all telling the president, you've got to strike these targets with the Air Force and then send in the Marines. And the estimate was 60 to 80,000 Marines. And, you know, the prospect for World War II at that point, I think, becomes quite possible. The Soviets may well have moved in Berlin, for instance, at that point. Kennedy, from day one, is resistant to those almost near-unanimous suggestions that we use force to, uh, I should say, direct, you know, overt conventional military force. I suppose you could call it, call the blockade a use of force. It was. Uh, but it was a much more restrained force that allowed Khrushchev to perhaps, you know, save face, sort of, uh, to back down, to think about how far he wanted to push things. Again, it's only within the last uh, 10 to 20 years, I would say, that we've finally gotten a full, complete account of the missile crisis. I would still argue that Kennedy and Khrushchev, interestingly enough, uh, saved the world from World War III. The one person who comes out the worst in all of these new accounts is Fidel Castro, who was urging the Soviet Union, in a sense, to push the button. So, yes, I would still praise Kennedy's handling of the missile crisis, but not for the reasons that Robert Kennedy and other myth-makers laid out over the years. What, what do you think of the argument that... Um you know, initially, I believe it's true that initially John Kennedy favored a strike, but held off on authorizing it. Uh, and then he, what he, he did was to kind of track a middle course between, as you say, Curtis LeMay and, and maybe we could say Adelaide Stevenson, you know. Uh, but isn't that kind of the, res so his decision making was shaped by these two extreme views, which, he rejected, and he tried to work a middle course. So there's almost a kind of structural, I don't know if that's the right term, but a, 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 you know, a structural element to the way, to, to the way it played out. And neither side had, had sufficient information to really make informed judgments. That's yeah. kind of my impression. So it's, as a, as a student of the presidency, and decision making in the presidency, it's, it, it, it seems to be a very, interest in case, and you could, I, I mean, I'm not disputing your conclusion, but you could come to that conclusion without necessarily attributing to Kennedy heroic wisdom or prudence. <laughs> it's almost kind of a result of the bureaucratic structure of the thing and yeah. trying to, you know, steer a middle ground. That's a great, that's an excellent counter argument, and I'm glad you mentioned Stevenson. I, I was sort of overstating Kennedy being the lone voice of restraint. Stevenson was a pretty consistent, somewhat lonely voice for restraint. So you're absolutely right. And by the way, Robert Kennedy in 13 days and in a lot of private conversations will accuse Stevenson of being an appeaser. Yeah. Uh, very, very highly critical of Stevenson, even though his brother is going to adopt essentially many of Stevenson's proposals to ease the crisis. Um, I... <sighs> All I would say, David, in response to your structural argument and your sort of uh, the, the, the suggestion that perhaps this was a splitting of the difference between the two extremes, it's somewhat unlike Kennedy to be even, I, I mean, I guess I just recoil when I hear the word bureaucracy and Kennedy, it doesn't <laughs> fit. Um, he's, for better or for worse, this is not a guy who... Um, how should I put this? He, he's, I find him to be a very, uh, he's unique among American presidents. He's a truly, um, I, I, I think he's probably one of the smarter presidents we've had. He's constantly questioning not only those around him, but himself. Uh, and I just don't see it as a sort of bureaucratic compromise. I see it as Kennedy truly uh, agreeing to make a series of concessions, which, by the way, probably would have led to his defeat 
1964, had they been publicly known. Uh, uh, he's just uh, too much of an independent thinker, David, for me to accept your uh, the, the, the argument you just put forward. Yeah. There's also, it, it, at least I, I think it's true that he, he had this kind of, um, I, 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 this might sound like a, a term that meant to diminish him, which I don't need, but, but a kind of romantic view of the president or, or a statesman in making decisions at critical moments, you know, profiles and courage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that, that yeah. would, I think, support your view that he, he wasn't prone to this uh, kind of, you might say, minim, minimalist bureaucratic way of dealing with things. He, he really felt he, he had to step up to the... That's terrific. To, to the to the demands of, of the crisis. Yeah, that's that's a terrific argument, which I wish I included in my book. <laughs> but no, it's it's a fantastic argument, and I, and it, he did have. I mean, in some ways, he he was a very cynical, jaundiced World War II veteran, uh, not exactly you know husband of the year. But he did, and Jackie Kennedy saw this in him. She talked about it repeatedly. He did have this romantic streak. He did love reading biography, for instance, histor of historical figures. And, of course, Profiles in Courage, whether he wrote it all or not, we perhaps deal with in another conversation. Uh, but it's typical of him to cite that kind of political courage, that lone voice standing up against the crowd uh, and doing what he or she thinks is best for the national interest. Yeah, great, great point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, and I do, I, I want to talk about the assassination, particularly because you connected to the kind of conspiracy theories that, that are, I, I think, having such a terrible effect on our current politics. But I, I wanted to say that in um, my limited reading about the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Khrushchev comes off better. <laughs> I mean, he is kind of still that, you know, peasant uh uh, blunt, uh, you know, braggart, braggart and so forth. But he, like Kennedy, had recognized that the terrible consequences that might result if they, if they screwed this up. So, right. uh, yeah. you're, that to me goes back to your point about, you know, obviously speculation, what if, but if Kennedy had not been assassinated and he had been able to work with Khrushchev, I, I thought that was a very good point you made, which I hadn't actually thought of before in trying to think of alternative courses, but that may, you're right. I mean, you can, I think you can see from, maybe from the Cuban Missile Crisis, something being done in Vietnam, like what occurred in Laos, if Kennedy had lived, if Khrushchev had stayed in office, et cetera. So to me, it, there's a connection there and makes that more plausible. But you know, if he had not been assassinated, but he was yeah. uh, assassinated. And I, I, I wanted you to, to talk a little bit about that. In particular, your idea that this is really where the beginnings of kind of conspiracy thinking entered into American politics. Uh, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I, you know, this is probably going to be the chapter in the book that turns off quite a few folks, but I'm firmly convinced that Lee Harvey Oswald is, was the lone assassin of President Kennedy, and I think the evidence, yes, some of it's circumstantial, but I think it's quite strong. Unfortunately, uh, due to the shock of this event, which, again, I can barely remember, um, as, as sometimes happens with events like this, people want to invest it with larger meaning. And even Jacqueline Kennedy uh, was quoted as saying when she learned that Lee Harvey Oswald was her husband's assassin, uh, that she was in a sense disappointed, as she put it, that he was killed by a silly little communist. The assumption was that this city of hate, Dallas, Texas, uh, that right-wing forces upset with Kennedy's soft, appeasing approach uh, towards the Soviet Union, as the John Birch Society uh, referred to Kennedy in Dallas, was kind of a ground zero for the John Birch Society. The folks wanted to or assumed immediately that it was either that angle or Kennedy's uh, civil rights advocacy that led to his death in Dallas. 
And yet here you have this silly little communist, a uh, 24-year-old former Marine, uh, who, as author Max Holland has put it, was the only Marxist within 100 miles of Dealey Plaza <laughs> uh, taking out the president. No one could quite, I think genuinely a lot of folks were skeptical because the assassin was, in a sense, on the far, far left, uh, in a be known for being far, far right. Uh, but again, there's also this effort, I think, to just invest in the Kennedy, uh, in this horrible tragedy, uh, a larger meaning that the president died as a martyr for civil rights or the president died because uh, he took on the military-industrial complex, which is sort of the Oliver Stone take, or the president died because he was going to get us out of Vietnam. I don't buy any of that. But you're absolutely right. I do make the case, and Donald Trump has contributed to this. He accused Ted Cruz's father of being part of the conspiracy to kill President Kennedy. Uh, I do see this. It begins on the left, a belief in a kind of deep state, usually composed of CIA, FBI, NSA elements, and military elements. And then now it's segued over to the right, and President Trump uses the term deep state frequently, uh, to describe any number of uh, events that he takes issue with. Uh, it's an unfortunate development, and I couldn't agree more. I think I see this rise of this obsession with conspiracy theories to be completely, uh, to be a real threat to the American system. Yeah, I, I thought that was one of the more interesting points you made about this notion of the deep state pointing out that it was originally a, 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 a view of left, left-wingers left about things. And all of that criticism of the CIA, uh, and I, I was just, I have on my desk, I came across a reference to it. I think I might be able to actually pull it out if I don't topple over some. Yeah. <laughs> I got Here it is. Be, be careful, Dave. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is, it's called The Invisible Government. And it was published in, um, I'm just checking the date to make sure, um, 1964 by David Wise and Thomas sure. B. Ross, the Invisible yeah. Government. And it's, yeah. it is a, you could say, left-wing critique of the fact that it's the CIA uh, that runs the U.S. government and all, you know, that deep state that people talk about now. That's going back into the, you know, early 60s, that view is coming out. And it is a left-wing view. And now... As you say, it's it's it, you hear about that on the right, um, yeah. and and I think you know that the the argument that the CIA was somehow involved in killing Kennedy because of his not carrying through on their yeah. on their bad <laughs> bad plan at the Bay of Pigs. That bad is the sort of mildest thing you can say about it. I think <laughs> um, that that shows the connection there. I think or, or the beginnings of that. Yes. That, yes. that kind of a thinking about how the world really works. Sure. And, and I would add to that, uh, look, there's no question. So Lee Harvey Oswald had visited the Cuban embassy in Mexico City a month or so uh, before Kennedy's assassination. He apparently offered his services to the Castro government as some type of operative uh, according to the Cubans, that offer was rejected. I think even the Cubans found him to be a little off. Um, but look, I, I do acknowledge, I mean, there are, there are, there's so much surrounding this thing that I do understand how people can fall in. And by the way, a majority of Americans believe that Kennedy was the victim of an, of a conspiracy, a broader conspiracy well beyond just Lee Harvey Oswald. So I understand it. One of the things I think people forget is the Warren Commission report, which put the finger on Lee Harvey Oswald, was deeply flawed. But part of the reason it was deeply flawed is they were trying to protect uh, the uh, covert operations of John and Robert Kennedy directed against Cuba, known as Operation Mongoose. All of that stuff was left out uh, by folks who knew it was going on. That was the effort to kill Castro and to undermine his economy and his entire government. They kept all of that out of the report. So decades later, when people begin to see that things were kept out of it, it's not that big of a jump to conclude that these folks in the CIA and elsewhere were covering up 
their own connection somehow to the Kennedy assassination. And let me just add, David, there's a link between the current conspiracy fever that I think infects, unfortunately, too many folks on the far right or even the right. Uh, and that's this QAnon belief that John F. Kennedy is perhaps still alive or that John F. Kennedy Jr. is still alive and will be running with Donald Trump in 2024 for president. On the anniversary of President Kennedy's assassination last November uh, 2021, uh, two to 300 QAnon folks showed up in Dealey Plaza because they were told JFK Jr. was going to show up that day. Um, well, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what you can say about uh, a thought like that. I, I did just want to emphasize that I, I thought the, the first point you made is important. In other words, given the devotion that people had to Kennedy and the sense of uh, the good he might have done if he had lived, uh, it's it's such a huge event to think that it could have such a silly or, or, or you know, accidental cause. It, it, people, I, I think that, that that was a good point to raise. I mean, that that yeah. it's almost as if people are saying, look, there has to be something bigger behind this. It's such a big event. It can't have such a peculiar little cause. Sure. Uh, yeah. No, yeah. No, no, I, I agree entirely. Uh, and look, you know, the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald is killed within almost, I think, 48 hours of pulling the trigger, that, that just, then things just take off from there. Right. Right. So, yeah. Um, I, I wondered if, uh, just, you know, as, as we wrap up, if, uh, if you wanted to say something, this is the fifth point you, you, you mentioned about the changing interpretations of his presidency or how you would, you would think about Kennedy now in terms of, uh, you know, not that, that notion of voting for who's the greatest, you know, the goat among presidents, but just in terms of evaluating his presidency as short as it was, uh, how, how that your views of that may have changed or how, how where you would place him uh, among presidents now? Yeah, I would, I would place him in a sort of near great category. Uh, primarily due to his belated but nonetheless aggressive stance on civil rights, which strikes me as, you know, a perennial issue of, uh, of American life. A um, hundred years after the Civil War, he's, he's out there trying to still convince people that these uh, citizens with different skin color deserve equal treatment under the law. And he does it in an eloquent fashion. Um, uh, a very powerful fashion. And by the way, he throws the weight of his office behind what will become the Civil Rights Act of 64. I'm one of these people who actually believes that it still would have passed. Uh, Johnson benefited from Kennedy's death, no question. Johnson was better at twisting arms, no question. But I think some version of the Civil Rights Act of 64 would have happened had JFK lived. So for that reason, uh, on the domestic front, I think he deserves our um, appreciation. Um, and I would just, on a, on a sort of, I make the comparison in the book between John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. This is another aspect that's going to turn off a lot of folks on either the right or the left. But um, I do believe that Kennedy and Reagan uh, were the most eloquent spokesmen uh, for even use this term, American exceptionalism, uh, certainly the most eloquent spokesman for Western, for the Judeo-Christian tradition of the Western world vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Soviet totalitarianism. Um, again, between Truman and the collapse of the Soviet Union under George H.W. Bush, I see Kennedy and Reagan making that case most effectively and, interestingly enough, Despite their other differences, Kennedy and Reagan didn't, wouldn't have seen eye to eye on most domestic issues. Both were determined to try to rid the world of nuclear weapons. And Kennedy's life was cut short before that could happen. Reagan came pretty darn close at Reykjavik and never quite gave up that vision. But they shared that view. They believed in American exceptionalism, but they also loathed 
nuclear weapons and the doctrine of mutual assured destruction. And for that reason, I think John F. Kennedy deserves at least a second look. And again, in my book, uh, he, he's uh, something of a near great president. Good. Well, thanks. Um, thanks for taking the time to talk about the book. I, I, uh, I've enjoyed reading it and, uh, I, I think people could really benefit. I think there's a, I mean, I think the discussion has shown there's a lot of, a lot of ways in which the questions you raise are, are, are still part of our political life. And, uh, thanks for taking the time to, to talk and, and for writing the book. Thanks, David. I thoroughly enjoyed it.